Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. My name is Erin Molino-Bailey, the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner at Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown, we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Robin Dunbar, who is the world-renowned psychologist and author who famously discovered Dunbar's number, how our capacity for stable social relationships is limited to around 150 people. Currently an emeritus professor of evolutionary psychology at the University of Oxford, Doctor has authored over 400 articles in scientific journals. His research is focused on the behavioral, cognitive, and neuroendocrinological mechanisms that underpin social bonding in primates and humans. So Dr. Dunbar, thank you so much for joining us here today on The Barrier Breakdown. I'm very excited to have you with us. And could you maybe share with our listeners who may not be familiar, what exactly is evolutionary psychology? Well, it's nothing very complicated. It's just ordinary psychology, but set into an evolutionary framework. And it's the evolutionary framework that really allows us to focus questions, particularly around why questions. Why do things work the way they do? I guess most of psychology just focuses predominantly on the mechanisms. What is it that makes us or allows us to be able to behave in a certain way or think in a certain way? Whereas an evolutionary framework just step adds to that kind of mechanisms question, uh, a why question, an evolutionary question. Well, does it have to be that way? Why did it come to be that way rather than another way? And that sometimes allows us to formulate hypotheses or ask questions which you wouldn't normally think of, I, I guess, in traditional psychology. It also has a big advantage because in the same way that it does in, in biology, in this, uh, an evolutionary framework allows us to kind of articulate all the different fragmentary sub-disciplines of psychology. And anybody who's studied psychology, of course, knows it's broken up into dozens of different disciplines who never talk to each other. Um, and an evolutionary framework actually allows some cross-pollination to go on, cross-conversations to go on in a way that um, perhaps wouldn't otherwise happen. It kind of gives you a common framework. That's essentially evolutionary psychology in a nutshell. All right. Well, thank you so much for that explanation. And can you tell um, some of our listeners what uh, exactly Dunbar's number means and what are some of the things that you've learned in the last few years related to these social group sizes? So Dunbar's number is really, as you mentioned at the outset, um, the typical limit on the number of uh, individuals we can have meaningful relationships with. Now, that includes your friends, it includes your extended family members, um, it may indeed include your favorite pet or your horse or um, maybe even your favorite rose tree if you like to talk to it um, to help it grow. But if you feel you have a meaningful relationship uh, with, with something like that, then they can be sitting there inside your magic circle of 150 people. It's just a, a, a limit really set by our ability to process information about other people. Uh, if you like, it, the people beyond that, they're not, don't necessarily become strangers as such, 
but they are people we wouldn't sort of you kind of wouldn't invite back to 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 your um, home for a, a big yard weekend party maybe or you, and you certainly wouldn't invite them uh, to your kind of those big once in a lifetime uh, events you know so I sometimes say the 150 is your bar mitzvah wedding and funeral group these are the people that feel they have an obligation to you uh, and they have a meaningful relationship that has history that goes back some way and they would want to be there on those big occasions to help you celebrate or as the case may be Very interesting. And I think that's a great analogy because as you say, if you had to think about who is going to come to my wedding or if something should happen to me and I die, who would be at my funeral? Um, those are the people I think that come to mind. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in friendship as part of your research? Well, this really goes back to the fact that I started out studying monkeys primarily, monkeys and antelope actually. Um, and particularly the nature of their social systems, the nature of their social behavior. And we, I became very interested in what it is that keeps groups of monkeys together, because monkeys and apes have societies which are much, very different to the societies of most of the other animals and birds that we're familiar with. Um, they're, they're societies that are based around bonded relationships, what we might think of actually as friendships in a meaningful sort of way. And they last a long time. They're not casual friendships. They, they, they last a lifetime in many cases. And so the question of, of what it was that limited social group sizes on the one hand, but also what psychological mechanisms underpinned uh, way in which these friendships are bonded together became kind of an overriding interest. And eventually, um, about halfway through my career, I discovered humans and uh, thought actually they would be quite interesting to look at. And there wasn't much money for studying large animals in, in Africa or Asia or anywhere like that. So I, I switched over to doing much the same things on humans. And, and that kind of opened up uh, not exactly a can of worms, but more questions <laughs> that, that I, I could ever have hoped to answer in a, in a single lifetime. But we, we've really spent a lot of time trying to unpack the nature of what relationships are, uh, what they mean to us, how they work, how they don't work uh, sometimes, uh, and how they allow us to build out of these kind of dyadic friendships, if you like, a community based around a kind of network of uh, interacting community members. So kind of how we create community cohesion has become a kind of a, a fairly major interest along the way. It seems uh, with some of your work, the connection between physical and emotional health uh, is very much impacted by, uh, by friendships or connections. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think, I think one of the most, surprising things to come out of the woodwork in the last 10 or 15 years um, is actually a sort of huge number of uh, scientific papers, particularly from the, 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 the medical uh, sciences, showing that the single best predictor of your psychological health and well-being, uh, even your physical health and well-being, and, and how long you live, how long you are likely to live into the future, is uh, your, the number and quality of close friendships that you have. And that just comes way ahead. The effect of that is, is much bigger than the effect of any of the things that your friendly neighborhood uh, a med medic um, doctor 
will worry about on your behalf. So the impact is much greater than your diet, um, how much you slob about in front of the television instead of uh, doing a, a run every morning, a jog every morning, um, how much uh, alcohol you drink, um, uh, what medicines you're on, even the air quality where you live. The only thing uh, which will please some people but not others that comes close to the same magnitude, the same power, if you like, in, in its effect size on your health and well-being uh, as the number of friends is giving up smoking. So there's a plug. But it, it really is astonishing that your this this very simple little thing actually, you know, just the number of people you see regularly and the number of kind of social things you do can have this dramatic effect on your just your general sense of well-being and engagement with your community uh, and indeed you know even your physical health you know the one thing that comes to mind uh that sounds very connected to your research is i wonder the impact the pandemic as a result of relationships have been impacted and then all that people are getting back and don't know how to interact or it's not as comfortable all that how that's in it, uh, creating a little bit more uh disruption can you speak to that yeah, what are the issues I think that's important to remember, uh, particularly as regards friendship? This doesn't seem to be so problematic for family relationships, which kind of seem very robust. But for friendships, the quality of friendships depends very much on how much time we devote to them, how much time we spend with our friends doing the kinds of things we do with them, where be that playing bridge or hiking in the mountains or just sort of hanging out and, and, and having a quiet chat over the yard fences, as you might say. Um, the, it, we have to keep those kind of friendships going and it requires a huge amount of time on our parts. Some, something like we spend about kind of about three hours a day on average in social interaction with people. And about 40% of that time is devoted to just five people. And these are the five people that really matter to you. And you, you're investing heavily in them to make sure they stay that way and they stay on your side. I, I sometimes describe them as the shoulders to cry on friends because like the cavalry, they're the ones that will come riding over the hill when your life falls apart. You know, they'll, they'll come riding over the hill, drop everything, come to your aid, pick you up, try and put you back on your feet again. Um, so it's really important to keep those going. So the great question is really, you know, what effect the lockdown and the pandemic has had on those relationships. And on the whole, I'm inclined to think that probably the short answer is not a great deal yet because we haven't been locked down for long enough. I think if you if lockdown went on for, it seriously went on for more than a year, so you literally didn't see anybody, that might have serious repercussions for your friendships because we, the quality of friendships declines by about a third over the course of a year's absence. So you would really start to notice uh, a big effect then. But I think for most people, you know, it, the whole thing has been kind of irritating and very annoying and they can't do the things they want to do. But at the end of it, we're so driven, if you like, to be social and to go out and meet with our friends and, and so on, that we'll just bounce back and, and, and we'll kind of probably devote a bit more time than normal just to rebuilding those friendships. And we actually see that in, in if you look at telephone uh, conversation frequencies and, and durations. Uh, if we haven't called somebody for a while when we, they might have expected us to, well, the next phone call we make to them is about 
half as half as long again as we would normally give them. And so we're kind of just trying to make up and kind of uh, uh, rebuild build the relationship. So I think I think the the place where it's going to be worst affected is for the older folk, sort of let's say plus seventy and above, because they're they're social networks, their friendship circles are declining steadily at that stage because the effort required to go out and meet new people and so on to replace friends who've moved away or perhaps died um, is kind of just too much. So they tend not to do it. And as a result, you know, your friendship circles shrink. And I think the, the pandemic, if they're in lockdown on, the, on their own or, or perhaps they're just one other person, uh, may actually kind of a little destabilize their, their friendships, not their family relationships again, but friendships may have to be kind of renegotiated a bit. Um, uh, the possibility that kind of it might affect younger uh, people, children, uh, teenagers and so on, I kind of think marginally so because, you know, children are designed to, 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 to be very resilient um, uh, uh, in the face of everything we throw at them or the world throws at them. Um, and, and I think they're so intensely um, designed to be social that, you know, as soon as they're let out of school, as it were, they'll, they'll be um, doing all the things they, they used to do and rebuilding friendships very quickly. And their, their friendships turn over very fast anyway. We reckon about 30% of uh, a, 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 a high, late high school, end of high school, early college uh, age uh, kids' uh, uh, friendships turnover every year um, and that's simply because they're meeting new people so you know they're, they're kind of um, uh, intensely social in, in that sense unlike us old folk dare I say it <laughs> who've who've stabilized a bit more and settled down to 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 a sort of fairly steady group of core friends who remain kind of more constant over, over the course of our, our lives. I'm glad that you brought up that topic of investment because I know that is one of the topics that you cover in your book uh, you recently published, which is called Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. And have you, has your research um, or do you have any thoughts on how uh, that investment, is it more, I'll say, beneficial face-to-face -face, or how has technology allowed people who may live further apart geographically or even in different countries to be able to spend the time and energy investing in friendships through the use of technology rather than face-to-face? -face. I think we've all been kind of interested in that actually. Uh, uh, from my point of view, the question has been uh, the nature of kind of conventional face-to-face -face interactions are clearly very limiting because you can only meet with a few people at any one time and therefore do things like social media allow you to meet with more people uh, at the same time uh, uh, and therefore have a kind of bigger social network um, and other people have been interested in you know how uh, dig the digital world influences our social world um, in a more general sense. I think the consensus in everybody's research, and certainly in ours, is that social media work extremely well in allowing us to keep contact, particularly with people who've moved away. And so we can't kind of walk around the block and knock on their door and say, do you fancy going for a walk or come and have a beer with me or something like that? 
Um, and, you know, we have that pressure to keep old friendships going. But it seems that, and certainly from our, our, our work, uh, that people find really none of the digital media, and that includes the telephone, anything like as satisfying as a face-to-face -face interaction. It's something about being able to stare into the whites of somebody's eyes and reach out across the table and pat them on the back or give them a hug or, or what have you, that just makes that, in, that interaction more meaningful and warm and, uh, and so on and, and uh, allows us to build our, our friendships. And part of that is because I think um, physical contact uh, uh, touch plays such an important role in our in regulating our relationships. So clearly, touch is not something you do with everybody because it has a very intimate quality to it. But for our kind of inner core, maybe fifty friendships that, and family relationships, perhaps that would run out to about your first cousins. Um, touch really plays a very important role. Be able to give somebody a hug or a pat around the shoulder or a kiss on the cheek when you greet them or what have you. Um, uh, stroke on the arm at the right uh, appropriate time, um, you know, plays a very, very important time. I, but sometimes I'm inclined to say, if you really want to know how somebody feels about you, then the way they touch you is worth a thousand words any day. You know, there's something you can't lie about when you touch somebody. It's very obvious whether that's a meaningful touch or, or not, whereas you can kind of almost say anything you like and <laughs> The listener has to kind of figure out, <laughs> do you mean it or not, you know? So, so there's something very intimate and, and important about physical touch. Of course, we, it's not the sort of thing we do with everybody, um, which always, as we know, creates lots of problems. It's also one of the reasons why we all go deathly silent and stare at our shoes when we get into a crowded lift, <laughs> forced into close physical proximity. So, you know, we don't want to create a sense of, uh, of uh, um, uh, overstepping the, the social boundaries on this, as it were. The elevator but, awkwardness, I think you're referring to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very weird world, this, and at, at, at the end of the day, because the, the rules of, uh, are unwritten, um, but everybody knows them, if you like, and it, it's often very kind of difficult to know uh, sometimes what is the right uh, uh, level to go to in any given case. But uh, if you look at our relationships, our known relationships with each other, as it were, then it becomes very, very clear that, you know, the amount of touch that is exchanged between people uh, is dictated by really the quality of the relationship they have, the emotional quality of the relationship they have. And it then plays a very, very important part in creating this sense of warmth and, and sort of trust and obligation and so on that, that underpins all our, our relationships with each other and indeed makes the social world go round in fact. So, you know, digital media lack that and I don't think they're ever going to sort that one out. Although I have promised the um, uh, techies that, that, that uh, develop all this stuff that um, if, if they can ever solve virtual touch uh, for us, they probably will deserve the Nobel Peace Prize uh, next time around because it will make a big difference to how we manage our, our, our communities, I'm sure. Um, but in the meantime, it's clear that it, it kind of, the digital world kind of works, uh, works well enough to keep things ticking over. But we think that's probably the best it can ever do 
taboo. It, it just stops the relationship decaying quite so fast when you can't meet up. Um, it's never going to stop that decay happening completely. So, you know, if you don't see somebody for a very, very long time, say two or three or four years, um, no, no amount of digital media will really prevent that relationship eventually, a friendship eventually becoming an acquaintanceship. Somebody you once knew, but you haven't seen for years, and you can't really remember much about them now, and you don't know what they're doing even. The one exception to that that we've noticed, I remember we're only talking about friendships here, not family relationships, uh, is those one or two, and it really is only one or two, kind of people you've known probably since your first year at school, maybe, or your first year at high school, uh, that you formed a really strong bond with. And somehow those relationships have become more like kind of um, uh, sibling relationships, brother, sister type relationships. And, have, uh, and they will then stand the test of time. But um, uh, for those of us who are old enough to uh, gone back to high school meetups with people you were at high school uh, years and years and years ago, uh, everybody will tell you um, it's fun for about half an hour. Uh, and then you wonder why on earth you were ever friends with all these people. <laughs> you know, and that's just because life moves on. You know, we change our interests and so we change our friendships. And, and uh, um, you know, that's an, it, it part and parcel of <laughs> real life. So that does raise an interesting question about, about the digital media is whether you actually want to keep up with uh, friends from a past life, whether in fact you aren't better off meeting new people. Um, and I think there is an argument for that, that particularly for these close friendships in this sort of um, shoulders to cry on kind of level of friendships. Um, it's no good having a shoulder to cry on who's, you know, a thousand miles away on the other side of the continent. Um, what you need is a shoulder to literally cry on a physical shoulder you have to be able to walk around and knock on their door and say give us a hug and help me out here um and so if you know if, if your good friends move away then maybe you shouldn't spend the time on digital media trying to keep that relationship going what you should be doing is trying to replace them with somebody local gotcha so it sounds like that guy who was giving out free hugs had it right uh <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, well, you know, uh, we're, we're British, remember, over here. We don't go around hugging everybody. <laughs> Evan must be British. Actually, it's not true. I exaggerate because we did a study of um, uh, where people touch each other in relation to uh, different kinds of relationships all the way across Europe, east, west to east, so Britain to Russia, north to south, Finland to, to Italy, and then in Japan as well. And basically the patterns are just the same. Oh yes, okay, the Italians are more touchy-feely and huggy than the British are, but not a great deal in the grand scheme of things. And you know, where you're allowed to sort of hug people or touch people, or pat them on the shoulder, or whatever it is, is pretty much the same across cultures. Now, typical as an American, uh, you know, is a big mix. So I have Italian, Spanish. I do have some English too, Aaron. So maybe that's the part that's a little bit generic. Yeah, you know, it was there. <laughs> <laughs> so that said, uh, Doctor, you've done many, much research over over four hundred publications. You know, anything surprising that you've seen in any of the research uh, that you've done that really stands out? 
Uh, well, I guess lots of things in many ways sort of kind of left fielded us. But I guess the one that has kind of surprised us more than anything is the big differences in social style between men and women. Um, and, and this is, I, I mean, these, these are, I mean, you know, most of our focus on, on gender differences has been on kind of things like IQ and can you do physics or, you know, are you better at writing novels and all these kind of things. And the broad answer to all those kind of questions is there are no differences. It, it's trivial. Um, but the social world really is different. And, and men's social world is astonishingly casual, astonishingly casual. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and lots of things then sort of follow on from that. And, 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 and in part of that, that casualness is a consequence of uh, the fact that their way they create friendships and bond with each other is much more activity-based. It's kind of based around doing stuff together. Now that might be, you know, playing uh, baseball on a Friday night in some amateur group or something. It might be mountain climbing. It might be, you know, just hanging out, <laughs> fishing, whatever, you know, whatever. It, 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 they tend to be physical activities. Um, and, so, and, and so it tends to involve a group of people, whereas kind of women's relationships are much more focused on dyadic interactions and, and the strength of dyadic relationships. Um, and so their relationships are much more kind of... Uh, if you like, solid and uh, 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 and less casual than men's relationships are. Um, one of the consequences of that is a huge gendering of the of social networks, which really quite astonished us because one of the glaringly obvious features of our social world is that women, uh, about 75% of women's social networks consist of other women and 75% of men's social networks consist of other men. And that number is stable from the age of five up to the age of 85. It's extraordinary, it never, never shifts. Um, but the, 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 and, and, and the other 25% that, that are of the um, uh, opposite sex are mostly family whom you can't do anything about. <laughs> it's, uh, and and you, you can kind of see this reflected in, in conversations. If you watch people at kind of receptions or, or gatherings of some kind, um, you know, once the group gets, gets, well, gets above four or five people, um, you get this, extraordinary uh, gender segregation so the girls go off and talk to each other and the boys go off and talk to each other and it's it's such a striking effect and I, I think we we kind of know this happens this is one of the odd things is we know this happens because we live in this kind of world so we're quite skilled at, uh, 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 at dealing with it and we understand sort of how it works but it's it kind of one of those things that just doesn't register if you like you know in, 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 in the front of your mind it's just it's, it must be sitting at the back of our mind but it's so glaringly obvious once you sit down and actually look to see what happens in in, in this social world wonderful well thank you so much for sharing uh with us dr dunbar and for taking the time today we definitely appreciated everything that you have researched is uh incredibly fascinating and we're really excited to chat about it with you it's a great pleasure thank you very much for having me and where can our listeners find out more information um, about your research if they're interested? Uh, I think the um, by far the best place is uh, the new book that's just come out, which you mentioned, Friends. Uh, that'll be on the bookstalls in the US in January, I think it is. 
but I'm sure you can get it through uh, Kindle via all sorts of uh, digital bookshops near you. Um, uh, and that really is a kind of summary of everything we've done over the last 25 years, trying to put the whole big story together. And, uh, and I think that's undoubtedly the best place to, to, to look. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And we look forward to following you and future research that you do as well. So thank you so much. Take care. Great pleasure. Bye. Thank you so much to our listeners for joining us on this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. We hope you stay safe and healthy and we will see you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute, and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.